May be seated. Thank you. All right. Well, it's been a little while. It's been almost a month now since we've been in the book of Colossians. Um, and I want to thank Mike Stewart for his sermon a few weeks ago. He's talking about Ecclesiastes and closing the idea of what Ecclesiastes is all about and how well it connected with what we've been looking at Colossians-wise and how we need to be looking to eternity and caring about what truly matters in this life. And now we continue that thought process. We've had two weeks now of, of missions emphasis, uh, and we've been blessed by that, and now we get to come back to Colossians. I know it's been really cool, because a lot of you have come up to me and said, when are we going to get back into Colossians? And I, that just fills me with so much joy, because it's like, yes, we, you, Colossians, let's get back there, let's do this. And some of you have been giving me a hard time, because I took a long time on the first 17 verses of chapter 3, but haven't gotten to 18 and on, and you think I'm afraid of talking about submission. Well, I'm not afraid. Um, uh, maybe I should be, but I'm not. So we're going to be going to there. We're going to be going there in just a few minutes. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians. We're going to be moving on from chapter three, verses one through seventeen, where we spent three weeks, and we'll review that in just a second. And we're going to move on to one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. If you take this one along with the passage in Ephesians uh, 5 and 6, uh, we hear this a lot. And it is the, the, family, uh, the family passage. You know, women submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, kids obey your parents, parents don't provoke your children, and then slaves obey your masters, and masters treat your slaves fairly. And that is the passage that we're coming to, and we'll read that in, in a short time. Um, What I'm hoping for by the end of our day and our time together today, that maybe you'll have a slightly different perspective on this passage. I feel like a lot of times, and we'll talk about this in great detail as we go on, that we isolate passages in Scripture to be good things to uh, apply, to do. And so sometimes I think we'll go to like this Colossians 3, starting in verse 18 through 4.1. We're going to go to that passage, but so many times we take that passage and we say, okay, this is what marriage should be like. This is what parenting should be like. This is what being a child should be like. This is what our work relationship should be like. And I don't think that that's wrong, but I think we've missed a greater meaning out of this passage if we take it out of the context of Colossians. And that's part of the reason why we've been going from the very beginning of Colossians all the way through to where we are today. It's easy sometimes to pick out passages and just get direct application right off the bat, but we miss something if we don't understand context. And so by the time we are done today, I am hoping that you will see this passage in a slightly different light than you've seen it before. And hopefully it will transform your views and your practice in your marriages, uh, in your parenting, in the way that you are a child, uh, and also your work environment. And I'm hoping and praying that as we look at Colossians and we look at this passage, that we will be changed in some of our thoughts and will be changed ultimately in the way we interact with one another. But really it all reflects on how we interact with Christ. But in order to get that context, it has been a month, so here we go again, everybody's favorite time, it's review time. So we're going to review a little bit from Colossians. There's three main things that you'll see in your outline that um, I will be drawing out, but there's a lot more information that here I'm going to be given, so buckle up, here we go. We're going to go through the first two and a half chapters of Colossians really quickly. First of all, our Colossians background, if you remember, there's a synchronistic culture, 
And it's caused Paul to have to remind the church that Christ is superior over all else. Christ is superior over all else. And the syncretistic culture that is developed in Colossae is one that says, look, Jesus is just one part of your spiritual journey. You need to add other parts and pieces and you need to come together and you need to take what the world says is is spiritual, whether that's rules, whether it's rituals, whether it's uh, any of these different things that the world is doing, you need to add those to your faith in Christ. And this is what the Colossians are doing. They're, 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 they're struggling with this idea. And in the city, you see that there is this synchronistic culture that the church is meant to stand out amongst. And so Paul is writing to this church and telling them that, no, you don't need anything else to complete your faith other than Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's all you need. And that's what Paul has been saying. And then he has also said this, that nothing should or ever can be added to our faith and that we are complete in him. Christians are complete in him. We don't have to add anything to somehow add fulfillment to our life. Christ is what we need to find ultimate fulfillment. And so we've seen as we've looked at the background that these are the themes that Paul is drawing out. But then as he goes through chapters 1 and 2, he backs this up and he gives some proof and he shows what it is we need to understand about Jesus so that we'll understand that he's superior and that we are complete in him. He starts off the book right away by thanking God and praying for the Colossian church, but he reminds them in his prayer what is truly important in life, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died for their sins, that he rose again to prove death and sin had been defeated, and if they would come to him in faith, that they would be removed from one kingdom to another, and they would be with him. He started there and he prayed and he thanked God for that in the lives of the Colossians. He then moved on and showed the supremacy of Christ by reminding us of who Jesus is. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the Lord of the church. And as he's those things, and he has created all things and sustains all things and looks over the church, as we know that to be true, there is no question the fact that he is superior. And so that's the first thing Paul shows us early on in chapter 1, and then he moves on and shows the supremacy of Christ through what he has done. Not only who he is, but also what he has done. The fact that he has reconciled the world to himself. That his death and resurrection gives us the opportunity to have new life. New life that is different than sin and selfishness, but instead is a life of love and a life of faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus, through his death, was the one that can reconcile us with God. Make our relationship that once was broken whole again. So then as Paul showed that Jesus is supreme over all else, then he moves on to talk about our completion. And he says, spiritual maturity can only be found in Christ alone. You can't look other places to truly find spiritual fulfillment, to truly find spiritual maturity. That it only comes through Jesus. And part of that is, is because we have been filled with Christ. Christ has filled us up. As we have come to him in faith, he literally fills us up. We are in Christ. And therefore, since we are full of Christ, we can live a different life. In the midst of this, Paul then tells us that we can't be pressured into finding fulfillment in anything else. That the world, even though what he's just shown us to be true, that the world is going to come against what Paul is saying, and the world is going to say, no, Jesus isn't enough. 
You need to add things to your faith in order for you to be truly spiritual, in order for you to be truly complete. And Paul once again reminds them that the world is wrong, God is right, we only need Jesus. And then the last few weeks, what we've been looking at is we've looked at the verses of 1 through 17 here in chapter 3. We have been looking at this as the superior one over all else. Christ has changed us. Remember the whole analogy of the fact that we've been traded from one team to another. We've taken off the old uniform and put on the new. And Christ has changed us because of what he has done and because of who he is. He has the power to change us. We can't change ourselves, but he changes us. And therefore... If we truly believe that Jesus has traded us from one team to another, we've put off the old uniform, thrown it away, and instead are living in the new life, if that is true, then we need to live like it. That it can't just be sitting around and living the same way we used to live. That's not the way it works. That Christ, as he's changed us, will not only change our hearts, but change our actions will follow as that goes. Not all at once, not in perfection, but we will be changed. And so God, Christ has changed us and we should live like it. And then we also talked about that part of that change, part of living like that looks like this. It is living in love, unity, and encouragement with one another. That we will love one another. That we will have unity with one another in Christ. And that we will also be encouraging one another. And if you remember our last time we were together, we talked a lot about singing to one another. We talked about teaching one another. We talked about loving and serving one another. And Jesus says, look, I am superior. I have changed you so that you can be like that. You can love. You can have unity. You can be encouraging because of me. And then in verse 17, and I want to read this, verse 17 of chapter 3. And what I'm going to say about this verse is I believe this verse summarizes what we've seen through all of Colossians so far, but I also believe that this verse is a catapult verse into what we're about to talk about. So I believe it's vitally important that we look at verse 17 and say, where has Paul been? What is 17 saying? And then where is he going? So if you look with me at Colossians 3, verse 17, and Paul says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I believe this verse centers the whole book, and this is the theme that I believe Paul is obviously making. As Christ is superior, everything should be centered around Christ. Everything should be centered around Christ. Every part of our life, everything we do, we're told here in verse 17, whether it's what we say or what we do, everything needs to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that everything we do, we go around and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to say this to you. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to do this. It's not about what we say, but it's about how we live. And remember the idea of identity. Doing things in the name of Christ means we are doing things in the identity of Christ. That we are claiming his identity and we are saying, look, everything I do is going to point to Jesus. I'm going to represent him in everything I do. And that is what the new life looks like. So everything should be centered around Christ. So with that in mind, and we'll draw back some some of this context as we look at what we're going to look at today. But with all that in mind, let us move on and read verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything that those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we read these verses, but what we need to consider as we read these verses today, as we look at what these verses are saying, is we need to understand that these verses are written in the context of the book of Colossians. That in the book of Colossians, we've just seen the theme that everything we do is all for Christ. That our whole life needs to be centered on Christ. And that is going to play, that's going to play huge as we look at this passage. As we consider this theme, it's been developed for the two and a half chapters now. Paul's thoughts here are an overflow of the theme. Our focus on Christ should be reflected in our closest relationships in life. That if Christ is the center of our life, that will be reflected in our closest relationships in life. In our family relationships and in our work relationships. And we're going to look at that today and we're going to say, look, here's the thing. We need to work well. We need to love well. We need to understand being Christ-centered in our marriages. We need to understand being Christ-centered in our parenting. We need to understand being Christ-centered as a child. We need to know what it means to be Christ-centered as a worker and as a master. And we need to know those things if we want to understand how we can center our life around Jesus. So I want to give a little bit of an illustration as we get going. I know I've already started going here, but you know, a lot of what we've been doing is we've been talking about a lot of sports analogies. And I know some of you it might miss out on the sports analogies. Some of you enjoy them. I don't all I know is I think that way sometimes, especially around this time of year. Uh, football's going, uh, baseball playoffs are going, go Cubs. It's, uh, um, so uh, we're, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, but I, as I was trying to think of an illustration this week, I was thinking I really would rather get away from sports. I want to find an illustration that doesn't have to do with sports. And I, I, I've written the sermon, trying to figure out what illustration might fit in, and I couldn't find anything. So, of course, I ended up drawing two sports. So... Uh, Indulge me one more week at least. Um, so here's the thing. We talked about teamwork last time we were together. That We need to work as a team, and that is important. If we want to have, we need to love, have unity, and encourage one another as a team in Christ. That we are all on the same team, we are all in Christ, and therefore we need to work together. Here's the thing on a sports team, though. Sometimes, in a large team, there are smaller groups of people within that team that need to work really well together or the whole team suffers. Uh, and so some examples of that might be this. Uh, you know, in football, the quarterback is very reliant, reliant on the offensive line. If the offensive line doesn't block the people that are trying to come and tackle the quarterback, the quarterback's never going to get a pass off. He's going to be sacked every time. And that's why some quarterbacks, and I've heard this of Jim Kelly, and I don't know for sure, I've never talked to him, uh, but I've heard that at times he would actually offer to take his linemen out to a steak dinner if they allowed no sacks in a game. Like... Because he wanted some camaraderie there. He wanted to know that his offensive lineman had his back. And you know what? They, ne- he, they needed one another. And that was a close relationship. But if that didn't work, then the whole team would suffer. Uh, the same thing in, in football. It's the same idea with a quarterback and a receiver uh, relationship. 
Uh, we've seen this in teams that have maybe even a good quarterback, but no receivers that they really can mesh with well. And they might throw a great pass, but the receiver takes the break in the wrong direction, and the, Paul, the ball falls on the field or it gets intercepted. And, and the thing is, there needs to be a relationship there between quarterback and receiver, or you're not going to see a good uh, passing game, and that affects the whole team. If you're not into football, right now we've got the baseball playoffs going on, which I mentioned. Uh, but you think about the pitcher-catcher relationship. You know, if, catchers are super important in, in baseball, if you don't know it. They're not just there to make sure the ball doesn't go to the backstop. That's part of their job. But also, they work with the pitcher to call pitches that they think are going to be the most effective pitches to get guys out. And one of the greatest examples of this, because I am a Cubs fan, was last year, John Lester, one of the, you know, a pitcher that maybe you have heard of, uh, uh, he had a catcher named David Ross, and, and everywhere he went, and he was traded to, David Ross followed, because Lester needed Ross, and they needed one another to have that relationship, and they were able to do very, very well. Now, Lester's suffering without him this year, because Ross retired. So this is the point. The whole team can suffer if the smaller relationships that are vitally important suffer there. My last illustration, because maybe you're not football or baseball, maybe you're a hockey fan. Um, uh, I don't know. And, you know, I could probably apply this to like a dance troupe and stuff too. I don't know, but I don't know those things. Um, But in hockey, you've got lines that work together. Three guys that are up on the line, they've got to know how to pass, they've got to kind of know where each other is going to be at all times. So they can do, you, it's crazy sometimes you watch a game and somebody can do a pass between the legs, go backwards, and it go, finds the guy perfectly where he's at. They just know where every, everybody's going to be. An example of this was in the 1980 uh, American hockey team. Many of you know Miracle on Ice. That, and when that happened, there was the cone headline. If you ever heard of the cone headline? And, and the coach gave them that because they were kind of a goofy bunch of guys. But they worked together so well that they had a line that were always together out on the ice. And if things weren't working with them, goals weren't being scored, and the rest of the team suffered. So what's my point of all these different sports analogies? It's pretty simple. If our family relationships and our work relationships, the ones that are the closest in our lives and where, life and where we spend the most time, if we can't have Christ-centered life in those areas, the whole team will suffer. Our whole life will suffer. The whole church will suffer. And Paul knows that, and that's why after talking about how it, what it means to be a team, what it means to be a church, then he goes on and says, your families and your work relationships need to be Christ-centered or all the other stuff will fall apart. And that is why he leads into this. And this is why I say we can't forget the context of Colossians here. Paul has been telling us to focus on Jesus, and now he says you need to focus on Jesus in your marriages and in your work relationships and in your parenting and in all those things, and then that will reflect me and it will reflect into the church. Excuse me. If our focus is on Christ, and if it's not present in these relationships, our very basic relationships we have in life, then where else can it be present? If our life as a a family person is not centered on Christ, what else can be? If the way we work and the way we serve is not centered on Christ, then what else can be centered on Christ? And that's the question we are going to look at. So with all that introduction, let's take some time to look into the three relationships in our lives that we've been talking about and see how our focus needs to stay on Christ in the midst of them. And the first one is our marriage. Our marriages. Uh, Verses 18 and 19, and I'm also going to read 23 and 25 again. Chapter 3, 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as a fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then moving down uh, to verse 
where I say I was. Uh, verse uh, 23. Um, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. All right. And we're going to stay there. All right. So the first thing we see, the first relationship that needs to be centered around Christ is that we must focus on Christ in our marriage. In our marriage. And our marriage is, is where we need to first focus on Christ. That is what Paul says here. And so he breaks it down with marriages. He breaks it down to wives and to husbands. And uh, here's the thing that a lot of preachers like to stay away from. I don't want to because this is what God's word says. I'm hoping that you will see that what Paul says about what wives and husbands should do is a direct reflection upon Christ. That the whole point of what husbands and wives do is to show Christ to the world. And so the first thing we're going to look at is wives. Uh, and, and by the way, before I get into this, quick thing. Okay, this is not a time for husbands to find fault with your wives or wives to find fault with your husbands or kids to find fault with your parents or parents to find fault with their kids. Please take time to consider your own life. It's very easy for us to say, yeah, woman, you need to submit to me, okay? Or, well, you don't ever love me. Okay, that's not what this is about. This is about what are you doing in your relationship, in your life, that is centered on Christ. And so I want to put that out there. It's easy for us to point fingers. That's not what we're doing here. And I'm not pointing fingers either, because I haven't figured all this stuff out. (laughs) There are times I still fail as a husband. There are still times that I fail as a father, and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm with you. I'm with you in the journey. Let, let, let's just have that as a disclaimer there. So don't look at me and say, well, he says this, but he doesn't do it. That's probably true because I'm still learning and I'm still trying. And so when we go through this, let's not point fingers. Anyway, that was not a planned rabbit trail. I have a planned rabbit trail later. Um, so here we go. So first of all, uh, wives should submit to their husbands. Submit is the word that the Bible uses. Uh, I'm not trying to change that word. Uh, The Bible says it. It says submit uh, to their husbands. But I want to point out a very interesting concept here. Later on, Paul uses the word obey when it talks about parents and children. And even masters and slaves, he uses the word obey. But see, he doesn't use that word here. You know, a lot of people automatically think submit and all of a sudden it's obey. Like, all right, okay, so everything my husband says I have to do right away. Like, that's obedience. I need to be obedient to my husband. That is not the word that Paul uses here. He could have. He could have used the word obey, and then we could talk about that, but that's not what he uses. He uses the word uh, submit. And so, first of all, in letter A, submit doesn't mean to obey. Women are not slaves to their husbands. I want to get that clear before we go any further. I'm not saying this morning that, uh, that the right relationship in a marriage is for a man to tell his wife everything she needs to do and that she has to do it as his slave. That is not what God is asking. That is not what Paul is saying. It's not about slavery. It's not about strict obedience. It's about submission. So what is submission? Well, submit is this, to put oneself under another for a purpose. To put oneself under another for a purpose. There's a couple things I want to say about this. The first thing is, and it kind of goes back to what we just talked about, this is to put oneself under. So this is a voluntary action, wives. So men, this is more for you. This is not an action that you should demand, that you should yank them through and say, you need to submit to me. That's not what we're called to do. Submission is a voluntary uh, putting under 
for a specific purpose. And here's what I want to say. Actually, you look at Submit, what Paul is saying here, you look at the context, you look at culture, and the thing is, in the culture, it was very normal for wives to actually obey their husbands. Like, everything their husband said, they obeyed, no question. And Paul uses a different word, I think, as a, to kind of go against the culture and say, no, you submit. You do it yourself. You voluntarily do this. And what submitting is, it's, I heard somebody say this this week, and I think it's a great way. It's to support. Uh, if I could change the word, I would, but I'm not going to in Scripture because it says submit. But almost you could say support or hold up. You know, you think of things that support up a building, like supports. Without them, they'd collapse. And that's what the role of a woman should be, is to support her husband, come behind her husband as he, as he struggles to lead the family, which we'll talk about, and love his family. As he does that, what he needs is a woman that will come up beside, come up underneath and support the man, support the husband. And see, submission, I want you ladies to think this way. Submission is not an order. It is not a, just a command here. It is a ministry role that God has given to you. He has given you a ministry role to your husband to support and to honor and to help him lead the family. That is your role. And I don't say that is know your role like a bad thing. This is a good thing. God has given it as a ministry. God has given it as a gift to you to be able to submit to your husband so that ministry can go forward, so that love can happen, so that the family can be centered around Jesus. A woman supports and holds up her husband as a helpmate. Help. The whole, that's the, the key there, help. And, and men need help. <laughs> Trust me. Um, and so look at it that way support. And that means you don't undercut. It means you don't nag. It means there's there's lots of things we could talk about. You apply however you want to apply it, but you need to be helpful and supportive of your husband. That is what is asked. That is what a Christ-centered life looks like, supporting your husband. And obviously, this isn't talking about a husband that doesn't know Jesus and is telling you to do ungodly things. Please don't take that to be wrong either. You need to submit to Christ first, which comes to our next point. Submission is done, as we see here, as fitting in the Lord. Submission is done in the Lord. See, here's the truth. Submission is not for the sake of the husband. Ultimately, submission is not for the sake of the husband. Submission is for the sake of Christ. And so you follow Christ, you center your life on Christ, and you help your husband live a life that is centered on Christ as well. Because submission is done in the Lord. It is not done simply by human effort. It is done through the effort of Christ. If Christ is the center, then you will be able to support and honor your husband. And so therefore, submission is all about being Christ-centered. And that, of course, means that if you are being asked to do things that are not going to reflect good on Christ, that is going to be ungodly, then of course you need to obey Christ before you submit to your husband. That should be without having even be said. Moving on to husbands. Husbands should love their wives. Husbands should love their wives. As you guys know very well, love is not simply an emotion, but it's putting others first. So guys, you want your wife to submit to you, but it should, you should make it easy on her. Because the role that God has given her is a hard role if she has to submit to a husband that is not loving, kind, gentle. 
one that is not putting her interests first before his own. And so we are called to love our wives. We are called for our ministry, if we are to be Christ-centered, that we put others first. That we put others first, and that includes our wife. And this is this. It's actions even when the feelings aren't there. I'm going to say that, because let's be honest. Sometimes in marriages, the feeling might not be there. Maybe you've had a fight. Maybe you just haven't had enough time with one another. And and all of a sudden, you find yourself not feeling the way you felt when you first got married. That's natural. It's normal in one sense. We need to try to foster romance and that feeling in our heart. Yes, that's important. But sometimes it's not always there. But our actions should still put the other person first. And like I said at the beginning of all this, I'm not perfect in this by any means. And I don't think any of us are as husbands. We need to make sure that we are putting our wife first and not our own desires. Ultimately, that is for Christ. Husbands should not be demanding, as we read here in this passage. Uh, Husbands, it says, love... It says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I kind of talked about this earlier, but we should not use our leadership that God has given. God has given the submission role to the woman. He's given the leadership role to us as men. And this role, this ministry that we have, it's not for us to use as an excuse or to to dominate and control. We are not called as men to dominate and control women. If we are to truly love them, put them first, and reflect Christ in the way we treat our wives, then we are going to use care and protection and love and selflessness. That is what we do as men. We don't, we're not tough and dominate and control and demand obedience. We are not demanding. Husbands should not be demanding. And so this is true. And once again, this is all in reference to Christ because then we see here, husbands are to love as Christ loved the church. Now, this is not in this passage. Husbands should love uh, as Christ loved the church. That's over in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we see this to be true. And Ephesians and Colossians, both written by Paul, both around the same time. All right, so Ephesians and Colossians. I want to go back to Ephesians because this gives us a a little more detail even than Colossians does. All right, and so in Ephesians 5, 25, this is what it says. Husbands, love your wives. We've heard that before. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it goes on, and I would encourage you to read that passage as well. We don't have time to unpack that passage while we unpack this one. But here's the deal. Husbands are to love as Christ loved the church. Our love for our wives is not about our wives. Our love for our wives is not about us. Our love for our wives is about Christ. If we are to reflect him and love as he loved, that he was willing to give his own life for us, so we too should put our interests and our feelings and all those things behind our wife, our wives. We should love as Christ loved. It's all about Jesus. It's not all about being a good husband or being a good wife in this passage. It's all about Jesus, which is letter C here. Spouses shouldn't live to please each other, but to please Christ. Verses 23 through 25, although as we go on, this is linked directly to the workplace and to the slave and master relationship, I don't believe that's all that it refers to. In in verses 23 through 25, it says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing then from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as a reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
this, this line here where it says, look, we are working heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We are serving the Lord Christ. This applies to the workplace, but it applies to our marriages. We don't live a life of love or submission for the sake of our spouse because it's not about pleasing our spouse, although that should happen. That's a good thing. But it's about pleasing Christ first and foremost. And that is something we need to keep in mind. And that is where the context will help us here. Because it's very easy to take these passages and say, this is what you need to do to be a good wife. This is what you need to be a good husband. It's not about us being good at anything. It's about us being centered on Christ. It's about us relying on him. We'll talk a little bit more in a little bit. But focusing on Christ in our marriage is vital, but we also, it is also vital to focus on Christ with the rest of our family. And so we need to keep moving, so let's get going. All right, so we are focusing on Christ in our marriage is vital, as I said. It is also vital to focus on Christ in the rest of our family relationships. So point two here is this. We must focus on Christ in our families. You say, well, spouses are families. Yes, I understand that. But we are focusing on families, and this is going to talk about kids. It's going to talk about parents. We must focus on Christ in our families. So we see here in this passage in verses 20 through 21, I'll read those again. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All right. So the first thing we see, hey, kids, if you're here, I don't see many. Oh, I see a few looking up. Hey, there's some kids here. Cool. All right. So uh, this part is for you. It's also for your parents to listen, obviously. But listen. The Bible says this very clearly. Children should obey their parents. I'm not making this up, kids. God says, obey your parents. If you are to be a Christian that has centered your life around Christ, then you will obey your parents. So what does obey mean? Well, I looked this up. This is actually incredible. I never knew this. It's something new I learned. To obey literally means to hear under. To hear under. That's interesting. So how would we say it? Well, it's pretty simple. Listen to your parents. Obeying, what we're going to see, obedience is, not, is about listening and learning, not just behaving. And this is important for parents to understand. It's important for kids to understand. When you obey your parents, you are listening to your parents, you are listening and learning, and, you are, and it's not just about behavior. So, hey, you might be a kid that whenever your parent says something, you do it because you're afraid of them. That's good that you're obeying them, but when you don't actually listen and learn from them and you just look at them as uh, someone who you just want to obey because you don't want to get in trouble, you're missing out. Because what Paul is saying here is a Christ-centered child, someone who is looking at Christ and everything, is going to listen to their parents. Their parents have wisdom. We don't rebel against our parents. We listen, we try to understand what they're doing, and when we're punished, when we, do, when we do are punished for our behavior, that there is an understanding that the reason the parent is punishing is not out of anger or just because they don't like you, but it's because they want what's best for you. So listen to your parents. This is what the Bible says. If you are following Christ, you will listen to your parents. And then we see why. So it says what obedience is, but now we also see why. And it says, children obey because it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. See, you don't obey for the sake of your parents, kids. You don't just obey because mom and dad said so. You obey because Christ said so. You listen because Christ wants you to. 
because it's to please him. That's what the Bible says. So if you want to be a child that pleases Christ, that lives a Christ-centered life, then listen to your parents. Sometimes this might even include for some of you adults who need to listen to some of your older parents too. They've got wisdom. Don't just think, I know better. All right, kids, you're off the hook for a little bit. So parents, moving on to you. Parents should encourage their kids. A Christ-centered parent will be encouraging to their kids. See, where do we get this encourage idea? The verse doesn't actually say encourage your kids. What it says is fathers, by the way, the word for fathers there, um, it's, it's the word for parents. I don't think this is applying just to men. Uh, maybe there's a little bit because the father is the lead of the house. I, I understand that. But really the verse here, because in the Greek, if you wanted to make something plural, even if it was feminine and masculine, you'd go with the masculine form. The good chance is this is saying parents, not just fathers. Parents do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So a parent is told not to provoke. What is, the, what is provoking going to do? It's going to discourage. So by logic, that means our job as parents is to encourage. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, literally, provoke means this, to stir up. So says, do not stir up your children to discouragement, is what Paul is saying. Don't stir up discouragement in your children. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in just a minute. Because over in Ephesians chapter 6, we need to go over to Ephesians. So here in Colossians, we're told, don't provoke your children. Make sure they're encouraged. Don't discourage them. Ephesians 6 gives us a little more information and helps us understand a little bit more of what it looks like to not provoke our children. Chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children. We've heard that before. Once again, parents, do not provoke your children. Then it says this, To anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does it mean to encourage your kids? How do you not provoke and instead encourage? Well, what we see here is it's through discipline and admonition. Now, some of your translations will say it a little bit different, but this is what the heart of the passage is. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't provoke to discouragement. We don't provoke to anger. And how we don't do that and how we encourage instead is through discipline and instruction And so what does that look like? Well, here's the simple truth. A parent's job is not to lead kids to worldly success or behavioral success, but to know God and live for him. We not only train behavior, discipline, but we also teach the heart. That's admonition. Not only do we discipline for behavior, which is important, but we also teach the heart. And we teach the heart to show them Christ. Say, where do I get that from? Well, let us see. Training and teaching are of the Lord. It says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not discipline and instruction of whatever you make up. That's not about it. Like, I'm going to discipline and I'm going to instruct you in the best way that I want to. No, it's about instructing and disciplining according to this. According to God's word. According to the Lord. According to the gospel. You see, our job as parents is to live the gospel for our kids, to encourage them to know Jesus, to encourage them to grow in Jesus. That is discipline and admonition of the Lord. Parents are to raise their kids for the sake of Christ, 
not for the sake of their kids. You're not raising your kids to make them good little adults. I know that's what the world says. And the thing is, yes, that will happen. They will become adults. And how you train them will come out as they become adults. But ultimately, your role as a parent is not to make them as much like you as possible. It's not to make them as successful as possible. It's not to make them the best athlete as possible. It's not to make them make the most money as possible. No, your job as a parent is to encourage them in Christ. A Christ-centered approach. All the book of the Colossians drives us back to Christ again and again and again and again. And parents will also drive their kids back to Christ again and again and again. And so what we see here in letter C, parents and kids shouldn't live to please each other, but to please Christ. We just talked about that again. Verse 23 through 25, if you remember what it said, it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You parent not for your kid's sake, but for God's sake. Kids, you obey not for your parents' sake, but for God's sake, for Christ's sake. That is what we do. So now it's time for my rabbit trail that I actually planned. And I know it's already 11.45. I promise I'll speed up on the last point. So what does this look like? We talked about marriages. We talked about kids parenting. What does this look like? Um, We've studied Colossians. We've studied God's word. We've looked at lots of passages. I've looked at lots of passages. And honestly, what I'm about to share, uh, some of you may look at as opinion. Um, Some of you may say it's my conviction, but it's not yours. But I think there's some very clear implications that we can make as we look at how we relate to our families. And this is where I want to start. And you guys may even know where I was going a little bit because you saw my, uh, my sermon title. I went back and forth on whether I was actually going to do this. Uh, it says, focus on the family, which is crossed off with Christ has been replaced. Here's what I want to say. Don't fall for the lie of living a family-centered life. My fear in Christian circles, and I'm going to be candid with you, is that we have replaced God for our family. That families have become so important that they have replaced God in our lives. I'm not saying family's not important. I love my family dearly. I am not saying that in some cases we don't put our family first in our lives. Okay, I know, understand, we need to love our families, and that is important. However... It started a while ago when Focus on the Family was started. Now listen to me. If you love Focus on the Family, they do really good things. They've got great things out there, and I'm not going to argue about all the stuff that they offer. But one thing that Focus on the Family, the idea of we are losing focus on our family, which was true, by the way. Uh, Parents were so devoted to work and so devoted to their own lives that kids were being left behind. And people were so devoted to work and their own lives that marriages were being destroyed. And so Focus on the Family as a ministry came about and said, look, we're going to help focus, get our focus back where it needs to be. We're going to focus on the family and not on ourselves. That's great. But I think there was an unintended consequence to that. The unintended consequence was this. Christians all of a sudden started thinking that their Christianity and their faith was based on how good of a family they were. That family was the ultimate priority. And like I said, family is vitally important. But we are not to live a family-centered life. We are to live a Christ-centered life. What does that mean? Sometimes that means you don't make your kids happy. Sometimes you don't make your spouse happy. Sometimes it means things have, decisions have to be made in the family that are hard Decisions that are made that put Christ first, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's inconvenient. 
We need to live a life of Christ-centeredness, not family-centeredness. I've heard this before, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody here because I don't even think there is anybody here, but I've heard this before where it's been said, I'm not going to go to church today, I'm not going to do this ministry because I need to stay home and spend time with my family. Family's good. Christ is better. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just equated Christ with the church. That's not fair. I, used to, I said that a lot too. What is the church called? Somebody said it. The body of Christ. Kind of a vivid picture. We're coming up on Halloween, so I guess I can do this. Uh, would it be weird to you if uh, I said that I was committed to somebody, all right, I was committed to somebody, and yet all that I really wanted to have anything to do with was the head. So I was walking around in my life, and I had a severed head in my hand, and I was walking around with it. What do people think of me? Well, they'd lock me up, but they think that I'm crazy, right? Because I've got this head without a body. doesn't make any sense. There's a reason that the church is called the body of Christ. And when people say, you know what, I, I worship Jesus, but I just don't go to church, then you're not really worshiping Jesus. Because Jesus said, my body is the church. I have died for that body, and that body is part of me. I am the head, and I am the source of all things, and that body flows. You see, when I say this, I am not trying to say that church should become your idol, because that could happen. Just coming to church because it's the church. That's not okay either. It's coming to church to be with others who are worshiping Christ. That we come together for Christ. You see, we've treated our life like it's a bunch of compartments. Like, I've got my family here, I've got my work here, I've got church here, and then I've got my time with Jesus over here. And we've got these boxes that are so defined. But in doing that, this isn't true. You know what the truth, the truth of the matter is, is this. This is our box, and it's all Jesus. And everything else comes inside that, and it's all about him. It's not about our families. It's not about our work. It's not about us. And it's not even ultimately about being at a physical church. But what it is, it's about being with the people of God, being with Christ. And that is what our lives should be about. And finally, what does this mean? Well, our decisions and our priorities will will reflect where our center is. If our center is Christ, then our priorities and our decisions will reflect that. I'm going to say some hard things here, and I hope this doesn't cause anybody to leave. But listen, we look at God's word. Are you living a Christ-centered life? What do your priorities look like? What do your decisions look like? Do you, do you choose to do family events over being with the people of God? Being with people of Christ? Is, are things maybe too late at night so you don't come out to do things And I understand, I've got a family, guys. I'm not trying to say that you need to abuse your family either. Is it is it sports that have taken more of a priority because we want our children to be good athletes? And that's good that they're good athletes. I have my kids in sports, but not at the expense of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Coming up soon, it's going to be hunting season. If you're not a sportsman, but you are a sport player, but you're you're going to want to go hunting on a Sunday morning. Are you going to teach your kids, are you going to teach your family that it's better to go out and shoot an animal than it is to be here with the people of Jesus Christ? I could come up with more and more and more examples, whether it's performances, whether it's sports, as I already said, whether it's just family stuff that's happening, whether it's a, a day trip with the family. 
Time and time again, I hear excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse about why it's okay to not be with the people of Christ, and it's always because, well, it's all because of my family. We are on a dangerous, dangerous, slippery slope. God's word does not tell us here that family is most important. He says Christ is most important, and our family will flow from that. We need to be Christ-centered. I beg you, I beg myself, because I struggle with this too. Be Christ-centered. Don't let your family be your God. Don't let your wife be your God. Don't let your husband be your God. Don't let your kids be your God. Don't let your parents be your God. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ should be centered. I'm going to close up this sermon real quick. Point three I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on because of our time. But our family relationships are in need of focus on Christ. That much is true. But so are our working relationships. Verses 22 through 25. Bond servants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are in your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward, you will... You are serving the Lord Christ, and the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. We must focus on Christ in our employment. Now here we see slaves and we see masters. We obviously don't have slavery around anymore. And I think part of the reason Paul uses slaves and masters here is, you've got to remember this, that slaves were part of the household at that point. So it kind of makes sense. He's talking about families, and then he flows into slaves. But I think the principles that we see, the implications that we see, can be applied to our working relationships. Employers, employees, workers, and bosses. And we see that workers should obey their bosses, honor We see that respect should be the attitude of your work. Respect for your boss. Respect for your master, if you will. That obedience and respect should be there. Are you a person in your job that complains and tries to undercut the boss at every turn? That's not a Christ-centered life. Don't only work when you're being watched, according to this passage, where it says, as I service, as people pleasers. So don't just do good work when you're being watched, but be sincere in your work. The way you work in front of your boss should be the same way you work behind your boss when he's not looking because you are working and serving Christ, not him. And so therefore, everything we do, we're serving Jesus. And then we see here, workers work well, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Once again, Paul relates back to Jesus and he says, look, all of this is so that you will submit based on Jesus, based on fear of Jesus. We don't work for our bosses, but we work for Christ. But then it also goes around to bosses or masters. They should be fair with their workers. I don't know who here actually has employees. I know some of you do. Do you treat your workers kindly? Fairly? Kindly? Do you you treat them in a way that you'd want to be treated? Golden rule right there. Bosses should also treat treat their workers rightly. Do you pay them for the work they're doing in a right way? Or are you undercutting them? Or are you using them to your advantage? That is not being right. That is not being fair. So are you treating them kindly? Are you treating them rightly? And then what's your motivation? See, fair treatment is because you have a master in heaven, 
And the word for master here is Lord. It's another reference to Jesus. Since you as a boss, as a master, have a Lord in heaven, you should, re- you should be Christ-centered in the way you treat your employees. That is a simple truth here. Workers and bosses, once again, shouldn't live to please each other, but to please Christ. Verses 23 through 25, what again, yet again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That is what we're called to do in our marriages. That is what we're called to do in our parenting and in our childrening. And it's what we have to do in our work. Put Christ first because we serve him and he should be and is the center of our life. If he has changed us, he will be the center. So it's plain to see here in Colossians that God places a high value on how we interact with one another in our families and in our work. It is important that we don't isolate this passage from its context. We talked about that. What we have seen is not a list of do's and don'ts to follow in our relationships. It's not a, this is how you be a good worker, or this is how you be a good husband. This is rather a reminder that every part of our life needs to be centered around Jesus Christ, even our families and our work relationships. It's not about focusing on the family, being a workaholic. That's not what life is about. It's about making sure that Christ is your focus, that Christ is my focus. Are we focused on him? I know I've taken all our time. I've got to say a few things to the people who think that none of this replied to them. You're single. You don't really know how you can apply all this stuff, maybe your work stuff, maybe even the, the uh, kid stuff of your kid. But listen, even if you're single... Even if you don't have any kids, even uh, everybody has a parent, but even if your parents are gone, even if you don't have a job, the principle remains, is Christ the center of your life? Are you using your singleness for God's glory? Are you using your singleness for Jesus? Or are you using it to fulfill your own desires? Are you using the, the thing that you don't have kids Maybe you had kids and now they've moved out, or maybe you've never had kids. Are you using that opportunity that God has given you to still be Christ-centered in your life, or are you spending it on yourself? So my question to all of us, whether you're married, not married, a parent, not a parent, a child, not a child, um, working, a boss, not a boss, all of it comes down to one thing, and that is live your life with Christ as the center And so what or who is the center of your life? That's the conclusion question that we need to ask. There's a couple sub-questions that fall underneath that. Who or what is the center of your life? And the first thing, have you come to Jesus and asked him to be the center of your life? Have you come to him even for the first time and said, Jesus, I want you to be part of my life. I want you to be the center of my life. I know that you lived a perfect life and I've sinned and I deserve hell and you lived that perfect life and then you died for me to pay for my sins so that I could have a relationship with you again. You rose again and proved that you were victorious over sin and death and all I need to do is come to you in faith and ask you for forgiveness and believe in everything you are and my life reflects that and I come to you. Have you made Christ the center of your life? Maybe you're sitting here and you're unsaved so none of this makes any sense to you. Why would I put Christ the center of my life? I don't even know him. Start by knowing him. Start by putting him center right off the bat. For those of you who know Christ, have you elevated your family to the center of your world? Have you elevated your family to the center of your world? Or is Christ truly the center of your life and of your family? Is Christ center of your family? Or are you the center? Or are your kids the center? That's what we've got to ask. 
But maybe for you, it's not your family that you struggled with. Maybe you've elevated your work to be the center of your world. That you find your identity, you find your hope, you find your security in your job, in the money you make, in the way you serve. That's not right either. We need to have Christ be our center. Even in our work, we work for him. We parent for Christ. We are married for Christ. We are kids for Christ. We are workers for Christ. That is what I hope we see as we come to Colossians chapter 3. Not just do's and don'ts. Are you truly centered around Christ? And all of us need to ask this question. And with that, we'll just close in prayer because I took too much time. But I want you to consider this as we pray. And actually, I'm going to... I just want to give us a few silent seconds to reflect. As we bow for prayer, let's just take a few seconds to reflect. Is Christ truly the center of your life? And is that reflected in the way you're living? We need to ask that question because Colossians, God's word, tells us to center our lives on Christ. Let us consider that for a few seconds and then I'll close in prayer. Lord, help us all. We can't do this in our own strength. We know that. Our desires and our selfish hearts want to draw us to ourselves and to center our lives on anything other than you. Lord, please help us. Help us center our lives around you. Help us to point to you and look to you and represent you the way you've called us to. Help us to love you. Help us to... Help us to be husbands that love you, wives that love you, children that love you, parents that love you, workers that love you. Help us to center our lives around you, Lord. Give us the strength. Give us the ability. Convict us when we need conviction. Encourage us when we need encouragement, Lord. Allow your spirit to work in our hearts so that we will make you center of our lives. We praise you for this morning. I pray that your word has gone forth and will change our hearts that we won't just sit on this and forget in a day. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you continue to do for us. Lord, that you are God, that you are sovereign over all. And Lord, as we think about all those things, Lord, help us to continually run to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.